Last week, we ended with Farrell and Calvin meeting in Geneva, if you remember, uh, and how Farrell essentially accosted Calvin and uh, compelled him by command uh, to help in Geneva. And you remember how Calvin felt immediately this, this sense of obligation that, was, that descended, in effect, from heaven uh, to his soul. And he felt the command of God in the command of Pharaoh, which is how God chooses, uh, for the most part, to work in this world through men and women, through his servants in this world. He cloaks his own divine design uh, by all of our foible-filled, if you will, uh, sometimes shenanigans. Uh, nonetheless, it is God at work, as, as we know, because of his word, and he says so. So this is what happened to Calvin in Geneva uh, in the year 1536, July 1536. He was just, uh, he would have been about 27, 28 years old, something like that at this time. So a young man still. My heart, he said to you, and this became his life's motto, my heart to you I offer, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. And uh, from that moment in Geneva, he said, I considered myself now as set by the hand of God at a post from which I could not withdraw. I, I just love that, that sense of absolute obligation that he had uh, when, when he perceived the command of God in something. And, and it's, it's, it's one of the chief features of Calvin's entire life, this sense of utter submission to the will of God, often in cases that were contrary to his own will and desire. And I think it's a wonderful example. He expected it of others well as well, and it made him sometimes not a very easy person to live with. In fact, I'd say... Uh, not just sometimes, but always not a very easy person to live with because the standard that he, he felt compelled to keep, he expected others to do the same. Uh, he felt that that was the essence of the Christian life, was faith in Christ and obedience to him, utter obedience. Which brings us to Philippians 2, because as we know, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Ecolampadius and Farrell, uh, all of these were men and... Uh, they fell short of the standard that we have here in Philippians chapter 2. Let's uh, just read a few verses, beginning in verse 5. This is of our Savior. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We'll stop there and open in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, our Savior, and our God, we admire men when we see your work shining in them. But how infinitely short even the best of men fall to this obedience, Lord Jesus Christ, that you yourself exercised to your Father 
and indeed as a man to your God. Uh, We should be ashamed of ourselves when we think of how far short we fall every day in our thoughts and in our actions, certainly in our words, how often we sin with our tongue. And sin clings to us. And again, we fall so far short of this model that you, our Lord Jesus, have set for us. But you've given, you've poured out your spirit into the church of which we are members. We thank you for it. We thank you for your mercy. Father, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus Christ, that you pity us. You know that our frames are but dust. And yet, nonetheless, you call us to press on toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus that we might attain, as your word says, to the resurrection of the dead. Be with us this hour and be with us in the coming hours as we are so privileged uh, to hear your word expounded out of the book of Romans, which we anticipate highly. But first we come to this study of your work in the Reformation. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Calvin was now in Geneva, firmly planted with Farrell. Dabinier says, this is in your handout, this is a summary of of Calvin's uh, basic work in the church, which was beginning now. Calvin, coming after Luther and Farrell, says Dabinier, was called to complete the work of both. The mighty Luther, to whom will always belong the first place in the work of the Reformation, had uttered the words of faith with power. Calvin was to systematize them and show the imposing unity of the evangelical doctrine. The impetuous Pharaoh, the most active missionary of the epoch, had detached men from Romish errors and had united many to Christ. But without combining them, Calvin was to reunite these scattered members and constitute the assembly. Possessed of an organizing genius, he undertook to form a church placed under the direction of the Word of God and the discipline of the Holy Ghost. Well, a church, a church was being formed in Geneva, but it's important, and we want to track this just a little bit. Uh, Just as a church was being formed in Geneva, Calvin, as a pastor, was being formed in Geneva. Uh, He was full of imperfections, and of course, until the day that he died, but particularly in these early years of Geneva, uh, we see him forming. And then, as we're going to see in a few minutes, as he goes to Strasbourg and sits under the mentorship of of, uh, Martin Bucer, we'll see him growing, beginning to grow by leaps and bounds in his understanding of of the church, uh, of its needs, of its need for unity, of its need for discernment. Uh, It's really tremendous to watch the growth. And again, I say uh, we, we really are just going to touch a little bit on it because that's all, frankly, that we have time to do. Well, the Genevans. So they're forming a church, an evangelical church, having cast off the yoke of Rome. They had been guided by the faith of Rome all of these years. And, and, and so it, it's hard for us to get into the minds of your average Genevan uh, to whom now Calvin and Pharaoh were coming to preach the gospel, uh, to draw them out on the one hand of all the superstition and to bring them on the other into the freedom of Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
So they had very much work to do. Uh, they, that is the Genevans, had been taught uh, in the doctrine, the Roman doctrine of fides implicita, that is, implicit faith in everything that the church had directed her, that is, the Genevan church, to do, they were to do and to believe implicitly. If the Roman church said do this, they did this. If it said believe this, they believed this. In whatever the church pronounced, their whole safety was wrapped up in this fides implicita, or implicit faith. Uh, they were expected to give their unconditional assent to the authority and the judgment of the Roman church. William of Ockham, one of the great, one of the celebrated uh, philosophers, uh, uh, scholastic theologians of the 14th century, said this, and this is typical. This is my faith because it is the Catholic faith. Whatever the Roman church believes, that only and nothing else, I believe. Well, to Calvin, this kind of thinking was what he said, the very brink of ruin, because it, it kept the soul's gaze off of Christ and glued it to the creature, fixed it on the creature, pried it away from Christ. We do not obtain salvation, said Calvin, because we embrace as true whatever the church has prescribed, but only when we know that God is our merciful Father through Christ and that Christ has been given to us as righteousness, sanctification, and life. So, if the Genevans were to be a true church, they needed true faith. Uh, it, it's, it's very simple, and Calvin understood it in those terms. They needed true faith, which is begotten by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. This is how we obtain faith in the soul. Christ speaks to the soul in a special, in a peculiar way, and suddenly faith is begotten. As, as Peter says, if you remember in, uh, in his letter, 1 Peter, he says, uh, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. This is how faith is begotten then. So, so now in the cathedral of St. Pierre, that's, that's where Calvin preached, the word of God began to sound forth, very much uh, like you had in Basel by Echolampadius and in Zurich by Zwingli. Calvin began preaching the text sequentially, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book, uh, just what Zwingli and Echolampadius had done. And the people noticed, noticed the power of it accumulating as they went through the themes of the prophets and the apostles speaking of God and Christ. Calvin delivered the scripture this way, and he said, The preacher is to invent nothing of his own, but declare only what has been revealed and recorded in scripture. You see the sense, again, of, of being chained, as it were, to the words of God. He had no liberty to do anything else. Uh, whether or not one agrees with his interpretation of the word, that in principle is what he understood that he was doing. He was chained to the word of God as Luther's conscience was chained to the word of God. And in preaching... He, he considered it not his liberty, it was not his prerogative to go beyond the words of Scripture, only to explain them so that the people could better understand. So to expound the text was, in Calvin's view, to expound the very voice of God. God himself was present and active. God alone, said Calvin, is a fit witness of himself in his word. The same spirit who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts and persuade us. So, the, the whole event of preaching 
as he understood it, was a solemn exercise. Not just the preaching, but the hearing. So the pastor is in the pulpit, the people are there, seated, listening to him. And it's a, it's a, it's a holy and solemn exercise under God, in the presence of God. Not his visible presence, but clearly his spiritual presence. And they should understand that. This holy transaction between God and his people which is what we will enjoy in the coming hour, when there's a preacher in the pulpit expounding the voice of God in the Scriptures, and we're seated listening. We both have a duty to God. One is to speak His words, the other is to listen. And even as the pastor is preaching, he's listening as well. So no one is exempted from that duty of hearing and heeding God speaking to us here and now. It, it, it really is a crucial point to grasp. And... Calvin understood it this way. There's just nothing like it in all the world. You can't go anywhere else in the world and receive this benefit. So that's preaching. But there was more than just preaching. And for a church to be constituted, for the Genevan church to be constituted, more was needed than just preaching. Uh, it had to keep to everything that Christ required of the church and that he commanded in the church. And one of those things was the sacraments. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. There was only two, as the Protestants understood it, uh, a, a, an appointed sacra sacrament being, in their view, what our Lord himself, Jesus, instituted when he was in the world. Uh, unlike the seven sacraments that uh, the Roman Catholic Church held and, and holds today. So they were pared down to these two that clearly Christ had appointed for his church. So, the Lord's Supper... And baptism. And if these sacraments, Calvin and Farrell understood, if the sacraments were to be uh, ordered correctly and rightly, discipline was needed. You, you, you had to have discipline in the church. The church had to have this, this right and power of discipline, especially in, in the sacraments, in the sacred duty of guarding the Lord's table. And I say table because... The reformers used that word table as opposed to an altar. Uh, you often hear the term altar. Here's an altar. Uh, that comes from the Roman Catholic tradition that a sacrifice is actually being offered. The sacrifice of Jesus is being re-sacrificed. And so this was an altar. The reformers were very jealous not to use that word when it came to the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table because he's, he's giving himself to us. We're not giving anything to him. He's giving himself. The Father is giving Christ to us. And so it's a table uh, around which we all gather together as one body and we feast on Christ through his offered body and blood in his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. It's a tremendous, again, it's a transaction. The preaching and the listening is a transaction. The Lord's Supper is a transaction between Christ and his people. There's a reason we call him the head of the church. Though he's not visible, he's here. This is what Christians are bound to believe. Well, if there was no discipline, you could have the preaching, the Lord's Supper, but if there was no discipline, Calvin believed that the church was in danger of being snuffed out altogether. He, he, he very much emphasized this point. But in Geneva, not just in Geneva, but in, in Zurich, in Wittenberg, in Strasbourg, in Basel, in all of these reforming cities, uh, the magistrates had the right and the power of guarding the sacraments, of fencing the Lord's table, as it's sometimes called. The magistrates were the one that had this prerogative and this right. Uh, again, this is a 
This is a symptom of, of the church and the state bound together. And the reformers were never able to extricate themselves entirely from it. Although Calvin led the attempt to do so, and he was doing so right now in Geneva. No sooner had he stepped through the gates, as it were. This is what Calvin said. We shall have no lasting church unless the discipline of the apostles be restored. And he says restored because it was not something that they had then in their own hands. The discipline of the apostles was within the church. Within the church. It wasn't a right of the state. How wretched, Calvin says, would be the state and condition of the church if she were forced to receive in so great a mystery those of whom she is in doubt. So if the church elders were not able to discriminate between those that gave a credible profession of faith and those who didn't, then how does the church keep its bounds? How does the country keep its bounds if it doesn't have borders? I mean, there's analogies here we could draw constantly. This was true of the church, and Christ had given the rule for what the boundaries are. So Calvin and Farrell were simply trying to keep them, keep to the obedience of Christ, who is the head of his church. Well, the Genevan Council, and we can appreciate this, was very jealous. They had just thrown off the yoke of Roman tyranny. They were very jealous. Now these Frenchmen coming in, these aren't Frenchmen in Geneva for the most part. Uh, You have the refugees and they would accumulate over the years as Calvin's ministry progressed. But right now, you know, you mostly have Swiss people right on the border of southern France. Uh, Geneva was that most southwestern corner of Switzerland. So it was right on the border of, of southern France. They were very jealous uh, to avoid another tyranny. So you have these foreigners, these Frenchmen coming in, evangelicals, which they liked in many ways, but they felt that, well, hey, you know, this is a slippery slope. We're going to give them one power, uh, and next thing you know, they're taking over. These foreigners are coming in and taking over. So they were liberty-minded people, and they were very jealous to preserve it. Calvin tried to show the, the, the infinite gap the infinite distance between Rome's tyranny over the church and Christ's rule in it. This is what Christians were required to keep. Not Roman tyranny, but Christ's rule. And he was trying to show that is simply all that they were doing. Well, they wouldn't budge. The magistrates, nor the people. Uh, Resentment began to accrue. uh, Public strife. Uh, Farrell and Calvin began being called names, having stones thrown through the windows in their houses, uh, chaos began to mount. I mean, it really was uh, turning into a crisis situation. Calvin and Farrell got to the point, and this was coming up onto Easter, uh, the communion, the Eucharist was going to be given, as always. Uh, Calvin and Farrell said they couldn't administer the Lord's Supper at this time with so much disorder and division in the church. You, you, you can't do it. And... So, they told the magistrates, we, we refuse to administer the Lord's Supper at a time when we need repentance in the church. En masse, not just one or two people. But this is a terrible situation. We must take care, said Calvin, we must take care of those whose blood will be demanded at our hands if they should perish through our negligence. We see them all rushing headlong and pell-mell to the sacred table. And they are eating greedily the wrath of God rather than partaking of the sacrament of life. Well, the council peremptorily ordered them to, to give the supper on time to everyone with, without discriminating. Uh, 
Calvin and Farrell refused to do it. Said, we, we, we cannot do it. We would be disobeying Christ. So we must instead disobey the magistrates rather than disobey Christ. Has a has a scriptural ring to it. Well, upon their refusal, the magistrates voted and stripped them of their offices entirely, stripped them of everything, and gave them three days to leave the city. So this is what the crisis turned to. And they left in April of 1538. So they had been there less than two years. I should say Calvin had been there less than two years when they were expelled from the city. Well, almost immediately, Martin Bucer, who had been keeping tabs on the situation, received a letter, I'm sorry, sent a letter to Calvin inviting him to come to Strasbourg. Although with this caveat, don't come with Farrell. Uh, Farrell and Bucer were very different personality-wise. Calvin was as well. Uh, and, and that is why, and I've, I've mentioned this before in a previous week, this is why Bucer uh, thought the two should be separated. They were, they, they were full. They were bounding with an overabundance of, of zeal. They, it seemed that they were loath to even the slightest compromise. Bucer was a man who had learned the art of compromise. Calvin would have said and would have rebuked him in the future for overcompromising in situations where the clarity of the gospel needed to be maintained. Uh, Bucer and Melanchthon both were war compromisers, which is good, uh, but they, at times in conferences with the Catholics, their desire was to somehow mend the partition and the break between the Protestants and Catholics. They thought that they could come together on the important issue of the doctrine of justification. And so Bucer and Melanchthon both uh, hemmed a little bit on points that Luther and Calvin would have said, we, we cannot give anything up on this point. Uh, so that was a difference, certainly. But nonetheless, at this time, Bucer, the great conciliator, was asking Calvin to come without Farrell because he knew they both could do good work, but if they were together, they'd encourage each other in their particular flaws and sins. And so let's separate them like the teacher separates the, the meddlesome boys in the classroom. Uh, they, they behave very well when they're not in contact with each other. And so that was Bucer's feeling of the whole matter. Well, at first the invitation was refused, uh, but then Farrell accepted an invitation, a call uh, to Neuchâtel. You remember, he had first brought the gospel to Neuchâtel and convinced them of the gospel, and they threw off Rome. And so now they were inviting him back. This was nine, some nine years later after he first came and preached the gospel in Neuchâtel, they called him to be their pastor. He went, and he would spend uh, the last two and a half decades or so of his life until he died in 1565 there as the pastor in Neuchâtel. Well, now that freed up Calvin, and so he accepted Bucer's invitation and arrived in Strasbourg and became the pastor of the French refugee church there. The French were evacuated. The French Christians, remember, were evacuating Paris by by the thousands because of the persecution there under the King Francis I. Good name for a king of France, by the way. But there were, oh my, like, I'd say upwards of 1,500 French refugees there that formed their own church. And Calvin became the pastor of this massive group of French evangelicals. Bucer provided a house for Calvin next door to himself. They had a shared garden. Uh, they would often spend time 
in the garden discussing scripture, the needs of the church, uh, coming in, sitting at the table with other reformed-minded evangelicals and leaders of the churches. Uh, it was a wonderful education for Calvin at this time. Uh, I said they discussed the pressing needs of the church, not just the local church there, certainly that in Strasbourg, but the, the entire growing Protestant evangelical church that was constantly growing in the European states. Uh, Calvin went with Bucer to, to many colloquies and diets at this time uh, and met and began to have this bigger picture of the entire body of the evangelical church and its needs. So he was becoming a churchman in very quick order uh, out of his provincial way of thinking earlier on. They went to Frankfurt. They went to Regensburg. This is where, in both of these places, Calvin met and formed a very fast friendship with Philip Melanchthon. All the way until Melanchthon's death in 1560. Well, Calvin's stay in Strasbourg was to be, and and here I'm quoting Bruce Gordon, one of Calvin's modern biographers, Calvin's stay in Strasbourg was to be a long and profound meditation on the nature of the Christian calling and ministry under the tutelage of Bucer. So Martin Bucer, as I said, was the great, of all the reformers, the great conciliator. Uh, You remember his role in Marburg, uh, where he mediated between Luther and Zwingli. Uh, He was no different here in Strasbourg, uh, a full decade later after Marburg. There was one occasion where there was a particularly tense exchange in a, in a room. Bucer was there, Calvin was there, and there was an issue uh, which you can go and, and, and look into here uh, if, if you're pleased to do so. I'm not even going to get into the, the topic, but Calvin utterly lost his temper, uh, stormed out of the room. He said, I sinned grievously. And and this is in a letter years later he wrote to Farrell about this incident. He said, I sinned grievously in not being able to keep within bounds. For bile had taken possession of my mind to the extent that I poured out bitterness on all sides. But then he said, Bucer followed me. And when he had soothed me by his gentle words, he brought me back to the company. This is something Farrell could never have done. Farrell would have stormed out with Calvin. So here's Bucer bringing Calvin back in after he had assuaged his temper. And then Calvin says this, which is very touching. When I got home, I was seized with an extraordinary paroxysm. That is, an emotional outburst. He broke down. I found, I found no other solace but in sighs and tears. So you see this, this immediate repentance. He knew he had sinned. Uh, But he couldn't help himself at the moment. The passion got the best of him. I hope we can all relate to this, perhaps not in our temper, but 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 this is eminently human. With this exception, it's not utterly human. It's utterly sinful human. Uh, Christ was human. He never did this. Jesus, our Savior, never did this. Uh, He did get angry, but he never lost his temper in a passion. His righteous indignation uh, was always completely, completely submitted to the will of God. Well, anyhow, uh, you can understand how Calvin quickly grew to love Bucer. Even as a father, he called him his father in this, in, in this capacity. 
Uh, though, as I said, he was not slow when the occasion demanded it to rebuke him and Melanchthon both for, for hemming and for compromising with the Catholics where uh, they had no right to do so with the word of Christ. Nevertheless, this is what Calvin said about Bucer. He had a singularly acute and remarkably clear judgment. There is no one who more fervently desires to keep with the simplicity of the word of God. The simplicity of the word of God. Simplicity is something that Calvin prized almost more than anything in the world. It's, it's something you notice very quickly if you begin to read his commentaries or his sermons. Uh, simplicity. It was the golden word uh, for, for Calvin. Primarily because it kept the minister as much as possible out of God's way. That's what he was trying to do. I'm a man who is prone to sin. I must get out of the way and let Christ rule his church. I'll do what he commands me to do in the way of delivering his word and discipline and the sacraments and prayer and singing as a congregation. All of these vital things that are a part of Christian worship. But other than that, let me escape and let Christ do his work. Uh, the duty of pastors, he says, is to lead obedient souls straight to Christ. But Rome's chief aim, on the other hand, is to deliver them over to the power of the Pope. See this clear contrast. You have Rome's sacramental system on the one hand, which was injecting the priest incessantly into every transaction between God and man. There's the priest. This is called sacerdotalism, uh, which essentially means that the, the, the priest is necessary in all of these transactions, vital transactions between God and men, because he has, uh, and I don't want to put words into their mouths, but the magic, as it were, uh, in order to, to perform uh, and to uh, effectuate this transaction between God and man. The reformers, on the other hand, in contrast to that, were always at, at pains to expel human mediators. They wanted to restore Christ to his rightful place. Again, I hope that's coming through. This is, this is their goal, to restore Christ to his rightful place as the only mediator between God and man and the head, the only head of his church in this world. So simplicity in worship, in the preaching, in the sacraments, in, in, in the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual psalms, in the prayers, uh, was one great means to this end. And this brings us to Calvin's regulative principle. Uh, it, it's uh, perhaps, perhaps not, uh, you're familiar with this term, the regulative principle of worship, the unlawfulness, as it's defined there uh, by William Cunningham in your handout. Uh, the regulative principle is the unlawfulness of introducing anything into the worship and the government of the church without positive scriptural sanction. Now, this is a clear departure from, from Luther's so-called normative Principle. You have the, the Lutheran normative principle, which essentially says that anything in, in the worship and the government of, church, of the church is unlawful if it's prohibited in the scriptures. Well, that makes enough sense. Uh, if the scripture says you can't do it, you can't do it. That's the normative principle. Calvin's principle, the regulative principle, says it, it, that's true. That's true. We don't deny that. But it's more than that. Anything in the worship and the government of the church uh, that is not explicitly commanded is unlawful. You see, you see the difference. It, it's ratcheting up the bar quite, quite um, profoundly. If the word of God does not command it, if Christ has not said this is to be in my church, 
then you don't have the right, even if it doesn't explicitly, uh, even if it doesn't prohibit it anywhere, you, you cannot do it. It's unauthorized. It's strange fire, if you will, to use an Old Testament analogy. Uh, you think it's a good idea? Like, yeah, we'll bless God by adding this or adding that or help the people because they don't quite understand. Uh, so we'll give them icons or whatever it may be. We'll help them out. Calvin says, no, this is the slippery slope to idolatry uh, from our perspective. But from God's perspective, it's strange fire. This principle, says Cunningham, who was a Scottish theologian and historian of the church in the 19th century. So we're, we're saying 300 years later now, Cunningham talking about this principle says, it went to the root of the matter and swept away at once the whole mass of sacramentalism and ceremonialism and ritualism and hierarchism, which, by the way, the Lutheran principle didn't have the power to stem. It could not stem that encroachment because there's many things that are added that simply aren't even discussed in the Scripture, kind of like our Bill of Rights. So it went to the root of the matter and swept away at once all of these things Uh, which had grown up between the apostolic age and the Reformation, which polluted and 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 degraded rather the worship of God and was exerting so injurious an influence on men's spiritual welfare. Well, he adds this then from the perspective of 300 years later and and think from the mid-1500s to the mid-1800s, the accumulation of things that had, had... glommed on to the church and become now long-standing tradition. You come into a church, well, they've been doing this for 300 years. You know, but, but it's still an innovation. If you can't find it in the scripture. Uh, Cunningham adds this, then, from this 19th century perspective. Application of this principle would have prevented the introduction of injurious innovations into the Protestant churches and saved a fearful amount of mischief. This is, this is one of the, the distinguishing marks between Calvinism uh, and the Reformed tradition and the Lutheran tradition, on the other hand. Lutherans uh, historically and Calvinists historically are agreed on their soteriology or their doctrine of salvation. But in terms of the government and the rule in the church, um, they're, they're very far apart on, on this point right here uh, between the regulative principle and the normative principle of worship. All right, enough of that. While Calvin was in Strasbourg, that's where we're at right now, maturing and growing in not only in his own faith and relationship with Christ, but in his understanding of what the duty of a pastor was, maturing in this, uh, what was happening back in Geneva? We want to come back to Geneva. Uh, There was a vacuum that had been created there. After Calvin and and, uh, Farrell were expelled, uh, the Roman Catholics saw their chance. Hey, you know, the, the Genevans are throwing out the evangelicals, the Protestants. Maybe we have a chance to come back in. And so that's exactly what, what was attempted. In March of 1539, uh, the, the Genevan Council received a letter from a, a cardinal who lived in southern France, just across the border, again from Geneva, uh, Cardinal Jacopo Satellito. He, was, uh, uh, he had been a very close friend of Erasmus until Erasmus had died three years earlier. Uh, he sent a letter to the Genevan church 
they sent it to other reform-minded people. They didn't know how to answer it. They, they, they didn't like what it looked like he was saying in there, but they didn't have the wherewithal to reply. And so eventually Calvin was tapped. Uh, Calvin, who they had expelled, uh, to write a letter, a response, a public letter, a public response to Satellito for all the churches to hear and to read. So he sent off a swift reply. Calvin did. Uh, it was a very brief exchange. It's, uh, you can buy it today in a small book, the letter of Satellito and then the letter of Calvin. Uh, but to this day, it's one of the great pieces of Reformation literature. Well, what was, what was his letter about? Satellito began by trying to recall the Genevans to the mother church, the Roman Catholic communion. Uh, he said that though they lapsed, they could return. You can return by, and this is Satellito's words, you can return by faith in the church, by whatever expiations, penances, satisfactions, she tells us our sin is washed away. So whatever the church tells you to do, obey, and you can come back in. He said to the Genevans, you should flee these innovations of men like Calvin and, and Farrell, who boast about, use terms like faith alone. Uh, be very careful about that kind of language. We do not arrogate to ourselves, Satellito says, we do not arrogate to ourselves anything beyond the opinion and authority of the church, but we proceed in humility and obedience. You see how he's, he's painting this. The things delivered to us and fixed by the authority of our ancestors, we receive by faith. So here he's speaking of faith, receiving the things that have been handed down. But he's not speaking here of faith in God. It's important to understand that. Uh, he begins to use very slippery language. He's speaking of faith in the rulers that are emanating from Rome. It's clear to see if you read his letter. Uh, these rulers from Rome were very much like the Pharisees that were emanating from Jerusalem. It's very, very analogous uh, to whom the Pharisees in Jerusalem, to whom Jesus said, you make void the word of God by your tradition. So Calvin rebukes Satellito. Although your letter, Calvin says, has many windings, its whole purpose is to recover the Genovese to the power of the Roman pontiff or to what you call the faith and obedience of the church. All that you leave the faithful is to shut their eyes and to submit implicitly to their teachers. And then he blasts Satellito for using these terms, these virtues, uh, humility and obedience. Uh, this is what, we see it today all over the place. I mean, we can't wake up on any given morning uh, without deceivers cloaking their evil designs in virtuous language. This, this is a staple of the darkness. Does it all the time. Satan did it in the very beginning. And it's the modus operandi died to this day. So Calvin rebukes him for using terms like this. He says, what has a Christian man to do with that prevaricating obedience, which, while the word of God is despised, yields its homage to human vanity. What has the Christian to do with that rude humility, which despising the majesty of God only looks up with reverence to men? Satellito, he addresses him by name, you have too indolent a theology, as is almost always the case with those who have never experienced uh, serious struggles of conscience. 
Otherwise, you would never place a Christian on ground so slippery as this. Christian faith must not be founded on human testimony, nor reclined on human authority, but engraven on our hearts by the finger of the living God. Well, Satellito wants to define Christian faith in different terms. Uh, Again, we we see this all the time. Uh, They're using the same word. They're defining it in different ways, sometimes spoken, most of the time unspoken. Satellito does not understand faith to be mere, and he uses the word mere, confidence in the divine testimony. When I say faith alone, Satellito replies, I do not mean as those inventors of novelties do. I do not mean mere confidence in God. We must also bring a mind prepared of itself for well-doing. And this, in us, is the true habit of divine righteousness. When we say that we can be saved by faith alone, so you see he was even using the language. When we say, when the Catholics say we are saved by faith alone, we hold that in this very faith, embedded in it, love is essentially comprehended as the chief and primary cause of our salvation. You really have to parse the words here. It's incredible how the minutia that's involved in this. But he's saying essentially, yes, you have faith, but the thing that really justifies isn't that, that naked faith in Christ, calling upon him. It's what's embedded under the faith. And, and as Protestants, we don't disagree that love is embedded in faith. There's an aspect of love in the very nature of faith itself. Uh, otherwise, we couldn't delight as we believe. Uh, but the, the delight, the love, is not the, the mechanism. That, that's a terrible word to use. Uh, it, is, it is not the, the, uh, that which God looks on in order to justify. It is, it is not the instrument. That's the word I want. It's not the instrument of justification. Faith is the instrument of justification. Satellito is saying, no, love is the instrument. That is the chief and primary cause of our salvation. Uh, this is Rome's doctrine of fides caritata formata. That is faith formed by love. So the chief and primary cause is not the faith. It's nakedly hanging on Christ's garment, as it were. Uh, but love, inherit, uh, uh, meriting by its own inherent virtue, the divine favor. Calvin's astounded. Calvin says, I was amazed when I read your assertion that love is the first and chief cause of our salvation. Oh, Satellito, who could ever have expected such a saying from you? Truly, the very blind, while in darkness, feel the mercy of God. He's speaking about those that are in true repentance. Feel the mercy of God too surely to dare claim for their love the first cause of their salvation. What Christian could possibly do this? Who can assign any other cause of our adoption than that which is uniformly announced in the scripture? That we did not first love him, but we were freely received by him into favor. The only haven of safety, says Calvin, is in the mercy of God manifested in Christ in whom every part of our salvation is complete. By his obedience, he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice, propitiated the divine anger. By his blood, washed away our sins. By his cross, borne our curse. And by his death, made satisfaction for us. You see how God-centered and Christ-centered Calvin is in all of this. It is so attractive to an evangelical heart. 
Well, Calvin's letter ends here. It was published, circulated widely. Uh, very soon, the Genevans were sending out invitations. Calvin, come back. Come back to us. He wrote to Farrell in New Chatel, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to this cross. This cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. There's no place under heaven of which I can have a greater dread than going back to Geneva. Well, the persuasion was, was packed on heavy and by many. Many of the reformers were saying, Calvin, go back, go back. He said a year later, were I free to choose, I would do anything in the world rather than what you, this is a letter to Pharaoh, rather than what you require of me. But when I remember that I am not my own, I present my heart as a sacrifice and offer it up to the Lord. Having bound and chained my soul, I bring it under the obedience of God. Tremendous. Well, this, is the, this should be the apostolic rule for every Christian. He left Bucer and he returned to Geneva. Uh, he arrived there on September 13th. 1541, and his very first sermon text was the next verse after the one that he had left off three years earlier. Uh, to show, as he said, indicating by this that I had only temporarily interrupted my office and not given it up entirely. And so here he labored uh, until his death in 1564 uh, with many, many more adventures which we'll have no time at all to look into. So let's close here in prayer. Next week we'll look at the Institutes, his great work. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your headship and your mediatorship, uh, which brings us utterly and finally and infallibly into heaven, there to dwell with you in, in the light forever and ever. We bless your holy name. Be with us now in this coming hour as we anticipate hearing your voice, Lord Jesus, speaking to us, your people. Amen.